When I'd made all the preparations I could think of, I settled down in the tank to wait for the Germans to start moving out of the shelter of their woods. The air was clear again, and I could see quite well through the port. I tried not to think about anything. My legs felt wobbly. I hoped if there was any God, he'd give me the brakes. Private John Lewis Barkley, K Company, 3rd Battalion, 4th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division, AEF, Hill 253, Merzargon, October 7th, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 79, Army of One. Got some admin notes. Shout out to listener Toby from Scotland, who tells me he has listened to every episode of the BFWWP three times. That is just the highest compliment, sir. And I thank you for listening to the show. Really, Wow, man, I really appreciate it. Big shout out as well to listener Scott, who recently donated through PayPal to the podcast. Thank you so much, Scott. So folks, PayPal is another great way to make one-time or recurring donations to the podcast. Patreon, not your thing, but you'd still like to contribute Who knows? Maybe you're a certain director named Peter Jackson of We Shall Not Grow Old fame and are looking to float a certain plucky little podcast with like, I don't know, six figures? Parentheses. I mean, if you're not willing to embarrass yourself by asking, do do you really want it? End parentheses. PayPal is an easy way to donate to the podcast. We have a PayPal button on the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, or you can just type in the contact email, Podcast at gmail.com into the PayPal website. Of course, folks, there are other non-monetary ways to help the podcast grow. You can review the podcast on iTunes, leaving a starred or written review. That helps a lot. What I'm told really helps is subscribing or following, whatever it's called these days. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, go ahead and hit the appropriate button on the podcast app you're using. Then, go tell your friends all about the podcast so they can subscribe too. Or, be like me, and have all your family members subscribe to the podcast, even if they don't listen to it. I don't know, make your teenage children subscribe, which I've done as well. Okay, back into the line. Alright, this is an episode I have waited a long time really long time to write. 
If you already know the story of John Lewis Barclay, then you know what's coming. If this is a new subject for you, the episode description has mostly given it away. Why Hollywood has never made a film of this, I just have no idea. Barclay is different from Alvin York, the mythologized Christian soldier fighting for his God and freedom. He was different, too, from Lieutenant Colonel Charles Whittlesey, whose indomitable leadership came at such heavy cost to his own soul. Barclay, a young private working as a scout in the 3rd Division, was different in that he enjoyed combat. This isn't to say that he was a bloodthirsty killer ready to kick ass and take names, as the old saying goes. As you'll see in the narrative, you'll learn that Barclay saw his enemies as human beings. What differentiates him is that he had no problem pulling the trigger when he had to. As Stephen Trout writes in the introduction to the 2012 copy of Barclay's memoir, Scarlet Fields, published by the University Press of Kansas, unlike post-war writers like Robert Graves and Eric Maria Remark, quote, Barclay sometimes relished combat, and he made no apology for having dispatched scores of enemy soldiers, end quote. John Lewis Barclay was born on August 28, 1895, in Holden, Missouri. He grew up on the family farm, and as a country boy, you think he would be. When not working on the farm, Barclay could be found out in the woods, hunting on his own. A stutter in his speech made socializing even more difficult, so he much preferred his own company. It's interesting, however, that people in his local area remember him as a hell of a teller of very tall tales. Apparently, young John's own mother had him take a sack during one of his hunting forays so that he could bag all those I almost had him stories he would bring back with him. Barclay had a hard time signing up for the Army in 1917 on account of his stuttering. At his local draft board, a doctor supposedly told him, Hell no, they'll never let you get anywhere. His own father, having commented previously that the Barclay line was petering out, the young man was understandably dejected. Fate, though, intervened in the form of another doctor at the draft board. This man told the first doctor, God damn it, we're not picking orators, we're picking fighting men. Barclay was off to the army. He went home to say goodbye to, in this order, his hunting dogs, his horse, and his girlfriend. He then shipped off to Camp Funston, near today's Fort Riley in Kansas, where he was assigned to Company G, 356th Infantry Regiment, 89th Division. Barclay took to the soldiering life without too much fuss. He enjoyed the drill, but not the monotony of military life. And this is where his antics began. When the monotony began to get on our nerves, he wrote in his memoir, Scarlet Fields, we had to think up some devilment to break it. Young Private Barclay began with pranks, which he was caught at and sent to kitchen duty as punishment. When he instantly graduated to stealing from the kitchens, he got caught at that too and was promptly sent back out to the drill field. As anyone can guess, the army in those days could be a rough and merciless place, a place where a guy with a stutter would naturally and immediately become a target. 
Barkley responded with his fists, and he had plenty of opportunities to show just what the scrawny and stuttering farm boy could do. At Funston, he was picked up for intelligence training. In today's terms, the intelligence section of a battalion was responsible for scouting ahead of the main formation, observing and sniping. Barkley, calling on his experiences hunting in the Missouri woods, did well at all three, but he seems to have been rejected. His number came up as a replacement to be shipped out right away with thousands of others, so off he went. At Newport News, Virginia, Barkley and his battle buddy Tom were reassigned to the unit they would go to war with, Company K, 3rd Battalion, 4th Infantry Regiment, 3rd Division. As they waited for their deployment orders to France, Barkley and his pal Tom got up to no good, sneaking off post to go smuggle liquor back into camp. On one of these expeditions, a craps game the two men were watching turned into a crap fistfight. Barkley and Tom dove right in, giving as good as they got, until someone walked into the middle of the melee and ended the fight with his presence alone. Barclay wrote that the someone, quote, was a man we'd never seen before. He stood there looking us over, and we looked back. He was something worth looking at, an American Indian, tall, dark, heavy-muscled, straight as no one but an Indian can be, He had all the earmarks of a regular army man, and he wore a sergeant's uniform. We must have shown our surprise at seeing a stranger. My name's Jesse James, he said. I like you, damn spunk. Who are you? End quote. So here, of course, we meet two of Barclay's closest comrades in arms, Jesse James and William Floyd. James and Floyd were both Native Americans, James was indeed a big guy. He had been in the army for years and years before the war, seeing service in China, as Barclay wrote. William Floyd was described as, quote, dark as a Negro, end quote. And for that, his nickname was that nasty word that rhymes with trigger. You know the one. I just don't feel like saying it. When Floyd stood up from his craps game, where Barclay and his friend Tom were introduced to him, Barclay wrote that, quote, he was as tall as Jesse, and I've never seen anyone but an Indian as lithe as he was. Jesse told me afterward he was part Choctaw and part Cherokee. He looked as if he didn't like us much. His eyes glittered at us from above his high cheekbones. His lips stuck out. His mouth was wide. It had a queer way of twisting up at the corners, end quote. James and Floyd were part of 3-4th Infantry's intel section, and James proposed to Floyd that these two white Indians he'd found brawling while they were off post illegally were the right kind of guys to add to their team. Listen, Floyd, James said, I've told you, these are two white Indians. When I say it, I mean it. They've fought everything in this camp, and they've wiped up with it. They're game to go AWOL with anybody, anytime. They've tried and found guilty. Floyd was all about it. All right, he said. The AWOL part suits me. When do we start? Both men were assigned to the intel section, but Tom was later separated from the group. Barkley, James, and Floyd became thick as thieves over the next weeks and months. James and Floyd were two hell-raising brawlers themselves, with Floyd in particular drinking everything in sight and always on the hunt for more. 
They enjoyed fighting, and both would be demons in combat. Barclay had found his people. 3rd Battalion, 4th Infantry, and its parent 3rd Division went into combat during the crisis period in early June 1918, when the Germans were straining the beleaguered Allied lines to their limits. It was here that John Lewis Barclay had his first taste of war. He was assigned an overwatch position near Chateau Thierry and was a witness to the events that would give his 3rd Division the nickname of Rock of the Marne. We won't go into these events in too much depth, as they will be better covered in other episodes. But I do want to use some of Barclay's observations from this time to show that he saw the human side of his enemies as well. From his position, he could watch as German infantrymen desperately tried to cross the two stone bridges that spanned the River Marne at Chateau Thierry. This was where the American 7th Machine Gun Battalion cemented its place in military history by mowing down waves of German soldiers as they tried to rush the bridge. Barclay watched from his spot. I had my binoculars ready, but it was several minutes before I could get myself to the point of training them on the bridges down there and the roads. When I did, I found out that I was still pretty far from being a hardened man of war, The columns weren't stopped by the machine gun bullets. But everywhere, as they came on, men were left squirming on the ground. I could see the officers quite clearly. They allowed no break in that steady stream. Every gap was filled up at once, and the column moved on. Moved on to certain death at the bridges. They were brave men, those German soldiers. I was learning that early. Later... Barclay wrote about the cold attitudes of some French officers who visited his observation post. What they said about the German corpses on and before the bridges at Chateau Thierry bothered him. They kept saying it was magnificent, magnificent, just as if they couldn't see those poor devils down there on the bridges and in the roads. He noted, however, but I got to understand that better when I'd been in the war a little longer myself. It wasn't long in coming. A short time later, still on the Marne front, Barclay was acting as a sniper on the line when he found a German observer across the way from him. My glasses brought him so close that I felt as if I was face to face with him. And when he suddenly swept his glasses at me, I jumped. It was just as if he was looking me in the eye. This wasn't a target. It was a man. And he was a brave man. Barclay took a long time to prepare his shot, hoping the German would duck back under cover. When the enemy soldier remained exposed, Barclay steadied his hands and shot him. Hell, he'd have shot me if he'd seen me first, he told himself afterwards. But he also wrote, Gradually, I got over that sort of feeling. Even that first time, I'd managed not to let the feeling disturb my aim. After a while, I got so that it didn't disturb my mind either. A curious incident occurred during the summer when a German shell landed so dangerously close that Barclay saw fire around him before he blacked out. When he came to, he noticed something curious. When he reported back to his company headquarters, he spoke without a stutter. He ran and found Jesse James and just began talking. My God, James replied, what's got into you? You're talking like a human being. 
According to Barclay, from that day on, his stutter was a thing of the past. That summer, John Barclay, Jesse James, and William Floyd got a bellyful of combat and killing as part of the Suicide Club, as the intelligence scouts were known. In their downtime, they sneaked or looted liquor and drank as much as they could handle, and then some. By the time the veteran 32nd and 3rd Divisions took over the AEF 5th Corps line on the Meurs front in early October 1918, these men and the other doughboys around them were hardened killers. As we saw in episode 78, the 3rd was attacking in the area between the villages of Romagna, Sumont, Faucon, and Cunel. Barclay's battalion, the 3rd of the 4th Infantry Regiment, had cleared out Bois 250 as part of their drive to take the eastern end of the Romagna Heights. After Hill 250 and its woods were seized, the next objective was the Bois de Cunel. As you will recall, between Nantiwa to the south and Cunel to the north, there is a triangle of woods. The unnamed wood sitting on Hill 250 at the bottom left of the triangle, the Bois de Zogon at the bottom right, and the Bois de Cunel at the apex. Following the clearing of Hill 250 and its woods, Barclay's section leader, a Syrian-born sergeant named Neon, gave him a new mission, to find himself a spot on Hill 253, the hill west of the Triangle of Woods, and observe the actions of the Germans. Barclay knew the area and balked. That's in the rear of the Jerry Line, and the place is lousy with them. Sergeant Neon expressed the urgency of getting eyes on what the enemy was doing. Frustrated, he told the young Private Barclay, Good God Almighty, can't you get it through your head that this is serious? The Germans are massing along our front. The 7th hasn't been able to get up. There's a gap between us and them. We've got to have information. Barclay gave in to the inevitability of the situation, but Neon was sympathetic. The sergeant shook his hand and said, I know you'll do the best you can, and no hard feelings. Scarlet Fields was the title John Lewis Barclay wanted to give his memoir when he prepared it for publication. His publishers went with No Hard Feelings, and for decades, that's how the memoir was known. Barclay set off in the middle of the night with a trio of Signal Corps doughboys who laid out wire for him as they went. They slipped past enemy lines and onto the northeast slope of Hill 253, where Barclay found a shell hole that offered some cover and gave good observation. He had a phone that buzzed when he received a call, and he was to scratch the receiver rather than talk. Barclay was well behind German lines, surrounded by dead bodies from previous attacks. Exhausted from the constant tempo of operations, he struggled to stay awake through the rest of the night. He described his position and the terrain around him in detail in Scarlet Fields. Quote, it was on a ridge almost connected at an angle to the left with Hill 253. From their hill at my right, the Germans would have to march down the valley straight across my front and up the slope of Hill 253 in order to get at our troops who were spread out along another hillside, back and to the left of me and behind the crest of 253. From my position on the highest point of the ridge, I could see in every direction. 
The woods that concealed the Germans were very close. The valley was even narrower than I'd realized in the darkness. Behind me and to my left, the tree-covered ridge ran back to the headquarters in Woods 250, from which I had come. To the right of headquarters, as I faced that way, and in the distance I could see Cunell. Somewhere between our Woods 250 and Cunell, the 7th was posted. Cunell was still German territory, linked with the hillside facing me by another ridge, which made a curving line around the far side of Hill 253. The woods directly back of me had been full of Germans when I had taken up my position. I could see now that these had all been shifted around to the left and were being organized there on the top of the hill, probably for an assault on Hill 253. The trees on their hill covered the whole slope down to the valley, but they weren't very thick or very large, and I could discover a good deal by watching the officers as they moved about among their men gave me a fair idea as to their exact location, and I made a rough estimate of their numbers. They were doing no firing, and the movement was carried out with so much caution that I was sure it was a surprise attack they were planning. They hadn't figured on such a stunt as Nahon had pulled off in posting an observer up there almost inside their lines. When I had these things worked out, I reported to headquarters. Nahon was on the job again. I knew by the sly chuckle at the other end of the line that what I had told him was good news. End quote. Night turned to day and then into early afternoon. It was October 7th, 1918. The Germans began shelling the vicinity of Connell, according to Barclay. American guns began to respond, shelling the Bois de Connell. The lone scout kept low doing his best to observe what was happening around him. German shells began screaming into Bois 250, and soon after, his phone line was cut. Barkley was cut off, behind enemy lines, alone, and in a place that was getting hotter by the second with artillery shell bursts. I figured that let me out as far as observation was concerned, Barkley wrote in his memoir, but it didn't tell me what to do next. He feared making a run for the woods would expose him to enemy marksmen. Remember the last narrative episode when we talked about how the French 15th Tank Battalion supported the U.S. 4th Infantry's attack on October 4th? And how the French Renault tanks had all been knocked out when they went around Hill 250 towards Bois de Cunel? John Lewis Barkley now saw one of those tanks on the northern slope of Hill 253. Bodies of dead German soldiers were scattered around it, signs that a deadly struggle had taken place. Maybe the tank had a machine gun. The French Renault FT-17 either had a 37mm gun on it or an 8mm Hotchkiss machine gun. Barkley found that his tank had neither the main weapon system had been removed, leaving a wide-open aperture in the front of the turret. But the dead Germans around the tank had a machine gun, with plenty of ammunition boxes left amongst the corpses. Though the machine gun had been rendered useless on account of its breech block missing, the resourceful Barkley had that covered. He'd been carrying a breech block in his pocket for weeks, just in case a situation like this arose. 
Two of the three intelligence duties Barclay was to fulfill were not possible at this time, scouting and observing. That left the third duty to him, sniping. With the tank and the German machine gun, Barclay had his mission. He figured he, quote, could make things interesting for the Germans for a while, end quote. Barclay was about to enter the most dangerous hours of his young life. American artillery dropped a load of smoke shells on the Germans massing in the Bois de Cunel, and this gave Barclay the cover he needed to get himself prepared. He mounted the machine gun in the turret of the abandoned tank and then loaded as much ammunition into the tank as he could. The gunner in the Renault baby tank sat in a sling inside the turret, and Barclay now hung as many belts of bullets as he could over that sling. As the smoke screen began to thin out, he rotated the turret slowly towards the Germans in the Bois de Cunel. The Germans began coming out of the woods, a surprise attack in the making. Barclay watched as they formed up in squad columns. The columns of Germans, totaling some 500 to 600 men by Barclay's count, marched towards Hill 253 and the abandoned tank at an oblique angle. They would be marching diagonally across Barclay's front. In Scarlet Fields, Barclay wrote, I turned the turret very slowly to keep pace with their progress. I waited until their rear elements had left the woods and started up the slope of Hill 253. By that time, the leading elements were beginning to spread out. I had them where I wanted them. My fire would rake them directly from the flank. If I didn't fire into the ground or too high. I took a long breath, worked the barrel of my gun out through the port, picked the direction of fire that promised the greatest results all the way across to the farther flank, let out a little breath, laid the gun waist high on the man who was closest to me, and eased down on the trigger. It was on. What comes next is a chapter from Scarlet Fields. Quote, the surprise seemed to paralyze the Germans for a moment. They huddled together and looked desperately about in every direction. They couldn't understand where machine gun bullets at such short range could be coming from. Then they saw the tank and started ducking for cover. But there was no cover in the open field for most of them, and they were some distance from the woods. I took advantage of their surprise and confusion. As fast as I could relay the gun, I fired burst after burst of 10 to 15 shots. I finished one belt and jammed in the one I had on my shoulder. I finished the second belt with long bursts. The German who had carried that gun had her beautifully adjusted. She fairly purred. As I inserted the third belt, I heard the gun gurgle. I knew that I'd have to go a little slower. Rifle bullets were beating a steady tattoo on the tank now. They couldn't do the tank any harm but they could come in through the opening around the gun, and my ears were catching hell. It's calculated that each one of those bullets strikes almost a ton blow. Before I went into action, I'd located a group of officers. I found them again after a moment's search. There was no cover where they were, and they'd thrown themselves on the ground. If my gun had been on a line with them, they'd have been pretty safe where they were but the gun port was five feet above the level of the ground. 
I trained the gun on the ones in the center and gave them a long burst. I got two. The rest scrambled up and started running for the woods. On the next burst, I bobbled. By the time I was lined up again, they were close to the woods. I gave them a burst for goodbye and got the slowest. He was a big fat fellow. One of the others stopped to try to drag him in, and a bullet got him too. While this was going on, the Germans left on the slope of the hill had had time to get machine guns, light and heavy, pointed in my direction. The fire upon the tank was so heavy it seemed to me as if it must melt. Tanks are cone-shaped and made so that bullets can only bounce off or shatter into fragments. But it sounded as if a thousand trip hammers were battering against the metal. And when I swung the turret back to return the fire from the hill, I wished that hole in the turret hadn't been so big. I didn't dare to fire as fast now as I had at first. My gun was getting pretty hot. I had used up the better part of two belts and seen a number of German guns go out of commission when the rattle against my tank redoubled. The Germans back in the woods on the hill to my right had set some guns and opened them up on me. I hoped they didn't have any tank rifles. A tank rifle shoots a long, bronze-colored bullet. This doesn't glance off or shatter into fragments. It goes right through the tank. Even without a tank rifle, things were getting a little uncertain. Several bullets came in through the port. I stopped every few minutes to let my gun cool off and open up boxes of ammunition. But the gun was beginning to boil and smoke. I poured all the water from my canteen into the jacket. The water boiled back in my face and over my hands. It nearly scalded me. But I kept swinging from the Germans on the hill back to those in the woods. This way, neither crowd had much time for thinking. One fellow in the woods was getting pretty accurate aim on me. Once he landed a burst squarely around my port opening, and two of his bullets came in. He was under cover of the woods where I couldn't get back at him. I shifted my attention to Hill 253. Ever since I'd started firing from the tank, I'd noticed a queer thing. There was no machine gun fire coming from our lines. But from some point back about a thousand yards to my left, I kept hearing a rifle being fired, very temperately and slowly. If I happened to be looking at the slope of the hill at the same moment when I heard that report, I saw a German out there tumble on his face. All the rest of the afternoon, that methodical firing went on. I couldn't figure it out. I watched for a while, between my own shots. Then I swung my turret back toward the woods. Sometime in the afternoon, a patrol of about twenty headed my way, carrying two light maxims and a lot of grenades. They got halfway across the little valley. I knocked over one of the men armed with maxims and went after the other. They dodged from shell hole to shell hole and kept on coming. The fellow with the second maxim was slowed up a little by the weight of his gun, and I finally got him. But by that time, one of the other men had recovered the first gun and had got into a position not more than 75 yards away from me. The Germans in the woods opposite ceased firing so as not to hit their own patrol. That fellow with the maxim used his head. He started firing straight at the barrel of my gun. If he had hit it, he'd have put the gun out of commission. I whirled the turret toward him. He was a brave man. He stood up in his shell hole and, with head and shoulders exposed, he tried to beat me to getting a burst home. 
The odds were all on me. I swung the sights just below his gun and fired. I was sorry, but it had to be one of us. In the meantime, the rest of the patrol had crowded up and were working on me with grenades. But those old spud mashers didn't do the tank any more harm than hailstones on a turtle's shell. If they could have gotten close enough to throw a whole bunch of grenades together, they might have put the tank out of business. But I didn't mean to let them get that close. I wasn't having much luck with them, however, and I was getting pretty worried about the men back on Hill 253 when a shell from a German 77 burst right in the middle of the patrol. That patrol got away from there in a hurry. I swung the turret to look for the 77. Another shell burst below me, but farther up the slope toward me, much closer. They were raising their elevation. I tried to locate the flash of the gun, but the opening in the port was a small place to look through. The third shell fell short of the tank, but not very far. The fourth sailed overhead and landed beyond me. But on that fourth flash, I'd located the gun. It was in the edge of the woods at the far end of the valley, some 600 yards away from me. Before I could get my sights placed, there was a terrific crash on the tank, in the air, inside the tank, a sharp blow against my chin, ringing in my ears, and blackness. I couldn't have been out long. I woke up strangling. There was a heavy weight on my chest. It was a box of machine gun cartridges. I fought that off. I was still strangling. I found myself grabbing at my throat, trying to get my shirt open. I tore off all the buttons. I heard a gurgling sound and saw that it was blood. I thought I was dying. Then I discovered that the blood was coming from my nose. But I still felt stifled, and I was getting weak from the loss of blood and the heat in the tank. I wanted water and air, but I'd long ago emptied my canteen into the gun barrel, and the only air was outside the tank in a rain of German bullets. Then I realized that the bullets had stopped beating against the tank. I threw open the turret door and put my head and shoulders out. I felt better right away. The flow of blood stopped, and I saw why there were no more bullets coming my way. The German troops had reformed on the slope of Hill 253 and were advancing toward the crest. Here, they were being met by a deadly fire from American machine guns. These must have been set up on our side of the hill while the Germans were busy with my tank. The minute a German head rose above the top of the hill, it became a target for our gunners on the farther slope. I found out afterward that they were the 7th machine gun outfit. The Germans were being kept busy enough I suppose they thought that fifth shell had put me out of the game, for they weren't even watching the tank now. Their dead were piled thick everywhere on the slope in front of me. I drew back inside the tank and closed the door. The stock of my machine gun was canted up against the roof. I figured that that was what had hit me in the face. I moved the gun, and outside something slid down off of it. I didn't know until I worked it out afterward that it was the caterpillar chain of the tank. The shell had torn it loose, and it had hit the top of the tank, then bounced over so that it rested on the gun barrel where it projected from the turret. I found that part of the stock had been cracked and loosened. I fixed that by binding it with an empty machine gun belt. Otherwise, the gun seemed to be all right. I swung the turret very slowly and relocated the 77. There were a good many Germans around the, on the hillside now, but it was that gun I was interested in. 
I wasn't at all sure how my gun would shoot at such a long range, but I was certainly going to take a chance. I opened several boxes of ammunition and inserted a new belt in the gun. The rest I hung across the sling, except two that I dropped over my left shoulder where I could get them in a hurry. I was all set again, if the gun still worked. I could see several men, probably gunners, clustered around the 77. I pushed my muzzle out. I was using battle sights because of the long range. I laid the gun exactly where I wanted it and fired. I gave that 77 a whole belt before I stopped. I fired under it and over it, to the right of it and to the left. Several bursts I sent straight at it. I wanted to get the gun itself as well as the men who were firing it. There was no more trouble from the 77, but the Germans all around there had waked up to the fact that the tank hadn't been put out of commission after all. They reopened on me with rifles and machine guns. I went back to my old tactics of swinging from the woods at my right to the slope of Hill 253 at my left and back again. Now the gun began to give real trouble. I had to jam every three or four shots. A few minutes of that and it became a single action. I had to pull the operating crank for almost every shot. I knew I'd come to the end of my row. Bullets were spattering against the tank from all sides. They couldn't send a patrol out for me as long as that kept up. But neither could I get out of the tank and make a break for the woods. Yet that was the only way I had any chance at all. The driver's compartment was in the end toward the woods. I decided to crawl through into that, wait until there was a slackening in the fire then run for it. But just inside the door of the driver's compartment, I found a can filled with thin oil. I scrambled back into the turret. I broke all speed records, dismounting the gun, getting in the new barrel, and setting the gun up again. I poured oil in the water jacket until it overflowed. I'd salvaged a little water from the old jacket, but not much. I took a look at the woods through the port. The nearest group of Germans had started a patrol my way. I whirled the turret toward them, and they ducked for cover. I poured a little oil in the breech mechanism, inserted a belt of shells, and thrust the muzzle out through the port. Then I pulled the trigger. The old girl came right through with a purr. I felt better, but just at that moment, a spud masher burst against the turret. The patrol had come up so close that I couldn't depress the gun enough to work on them successfully but I kept on firing short bursts at them, and they were afraid to leave their cover in the shell holes. All of a sudden, I noticed that when one of them ducked into a hole, he left a big bag of grenades outside. I knocked off my helmet, placed the stock on top of my shoulder, and laid on that sack of grenades and gave it a burst. It went off with the roar of a six-inch shell. The concussion shook the tank. Flying pieces of the grenades got several of the patrol, the rest watched their chance and got back to safety in the woods. I took up my old job of peppering first the hillside and then the woods. I fired as accurately as I could and slowly. But the gun began to overheat again, and this time it fried oil. It wasn't long before the turret stank so that I could hardly breathe. Worse than that, the smoke around the gun was so thick it was almost impossible to see through it to aim. It was beginning to grow dark outside too, and targets were much less distinct. About this time, I found I had nearly used up my ammunition. I eased the door open a little way and dragged in several of the boxes I'd piled outside. 
I kept on firing, but the gun began to have a stoppage every now and then. When I had to take a few seconds off to cool the gun, I dragged some more boxes of shells into the tank. One such time I spent trying out my Luger and my forty-five. I wanted to be sure that I had a shooting chance if a patrol got to me, or if I stuck it out and made a dash for the woods after dark. I didn't like those intervals between fighting. They gave me too much time to think, and my thoughts were getting pretty black. The gun began to stutter so badly after a while that I knew I'd have to give it a real rest. I didn't even try to keep a lookout for patrols. If they were coming, they were coming. There was nothing I could do about it. I just sat there, with my head in my hands, waiting. I told myself I was waiting for the gun to cool off. But it was really the end I was waiting for. I couldn't hold out much longer with a gun that would fire only once in a while. Suddenly, a new sound came crashing through the noise the bullets had made against my tank. I jumped up and swung the turret toward it to look out. Shells from our artillery were bursting all over the slope of Hill 253. My gun had cooled down a little and I joined in, firing as fast as I dared. The next time the gun began to stutter, I swung the turret around to where I could get a view of Woods 250 away in the rear. I could see troops filing out toward the Bois de Canel. I supposed it was the 4th moving forward, but it turned out to be some of the 30th Infantry relieving our men. I learned afterward that one of their observers had kept watch of my tank all that afternoon and telephoned everything that happened back to their headquarters. Of course, they didn't know who it was in the tank. I started firing, but it was no good. The oil in the jacket was so hot I was afraid it would catch on fire. I poured in a little fresh oil and waited. But I never fired that gun again. When I thought it was cool enough, I took a look through the port to get my aim. The Germans on Hill 253 were running like rabbits for the woods. Our barrage had shifted now from the side of the hill to the edge of the farther woods, but the Germans ran right through it. Behind them, the lines of the 7th were sweeping down over the top of Hill 253. I threw open the tank door and climbed out. I was pretty sick to my stomach. A group of the 7th was coming toward me, an officer and 25 or 30 men. The officer asked me what company I belonged to. Company K of the 4th Infantry, sir, I said. What the devil are you doing over here? I told him I'd been holding the fort in that tank. He took a look at the tank, then one inside it, then one at me. He must have noticed the blood matted in my whiskers. You certainly look like hell. Who hit you in the chin, he said. I was too far gone to answer. I asked him where my outfit was. I don't know, he said, but you'd better find out and rejoin them. I saluted and started off towards Woods 250. He led his men on in the opposite direction. I'd made it back about to where my old shell hole was. A terrific crash came behind me. I swung around toward it. A six-inch shell from a German heavy artillery gun far in the rear had exploded a few feet from the tank. As I stumbled through the woods, I could hear the shells crashing all around the tank. The Germans had at last got the range of the tank back to the heavy guns behind their lines. As I came closer to Woods 250, details kept passing me carrying dead and wounded men back from the slopes of Hill 253. Just outside the door of the battalion headquarters dug out, the new intelligence officer who had talked to me the evening before was lying on the ground. He'd been mangled by a shell. 
He was still breathing, but that was all. A detail was preparing to take him to the rear. I stumbled down the steps into the dugout. There were a couple of officers in there looking at a map. Sergeant Aon was sitting at a table. His head was in his arms, down on the table. I reported to one of the officers. Naon looked up. He said, You got back after all, Jack. He pulled himself up out of his chair and came across the room to me. He put his arms around my shoulders and started to cry. He kept saying, My God, you got back after all. Hell, I said. I'm not good looking enough to be an angel, am I? Naon and I started back. We passed the place where the kitchens had been set up and chow was nearly ready. We made it to the aid station. Just outside, Naon stopped. I felt him slipping and tried to hold him, but he collapsed and crumpled up on the ground just as one of the pill rollers came out of the aid station to help us. End quote. John Lewis Barkley grabbed some food and a bit of rest and was soon back out in the fighting in the 3rd Division sector. He hardly told anyone about the action on Hill 253, but Jesse James had seen it. Jesse James had been the source of the aimed rifle shots Barkley had heard during the engagement, and others had seen it as well. Word went up the chain of command. Much later, on March 17, 1919, General John J. Pershing would pin the Medal of Honor on Barkley's chest. Clearly, he had earned it. Today, his medals are on display at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. The book, again, is Scarlet Fields, and it is well worth the read. All right, folks, there you have it. The story of John Lewis Barkley. What a tale. Next episode, we travel across the Meuse to the right bank. There, the AEF was about to deal with the German guns on the Meuse Heights once and for all. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.